I want to do a little bit of, a little bit of English vocabulary. Um, not that these are words you do not know. Uh, I, I did a prospective member interview lately, and the, and the dear individual who was in that prospective member interview said, I, I, I use my, my phone to look up words sometimes when you're preaching. Uh, mom, I, when I speak of my mom in the past tense, it's not because she's passed away, it's because she's long since retired. Mom was an English teacher. And uh, vocabulary is kind of her thing. I never, ever, 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 except, except for comedic effect on rare occasions, I'll introduce a word that I'm guessing may be an unusual word. But I never say, well, let me just flash a word. I'll show them that I've done some reading. I never mean ever to do that. Because it doesn't matter. It's meaningless, our vocabulary inventory. But there's a concept we need to work our way back to. If I say that first things are primary and second things are secondary, do you know the word that goes with third things? Tertiary. There are a lot of folks in the room that knew that. That's so good. All right. Now, if you're going to understand, it's important to understand in terms of, of doctrine. Primary things, secondary things, and tertiary things matter if you're going to have good relationships with brothers and sisters in Christ and, and have your doctrinal, and, and I know doctrine is a dusty word, but it just means truth. Theology just means words about God. These words are not, words like doctrine and theology are not supposed to be off-putting, right? Primary matters doctrinally speaking, are matters where we would say if you don't align with this primary matter, you really can't call yourself a Christian. Primary matters define what is Christianity and what isn't. Secondary matters define who can go to church together and function together in a given body of Christ. For us at McGregor, if you were here Sunday, you heard me make reference to this. The Baptist faith and message, we have an actual, written, readable, examinable confession of faith as a church that defines what are for us the boundaries of what we would say are the primary and secondary matters. Tertiary matters are matters where within our agreement on secondary matter, we can go to church together, but we might, we might just see something differently. You know, I've used the example and have taught on the example of a, of a particular understanding 
of the, the roadmap of the future. That the, the, the word, events like the, the Lord's appearing and the rapture and the millennium and those kinds of things. The Baptist faith and message is not extraordinarily detailed. So we can, I, I go to church with people that I know feel differently than I do about the, the future events of the end times. And they have every right to be wrong and still be a member of our... <laughs> I have every right to be wrong and still be a member of our church because we agree on... We're all believers because we agree on primary matters. We can all go to church and be part of the same body of Christ because we agree on secondary matters. And we can do well together even as we disagree on tertiary matters. Okay. There aren't... No, I'll word that differently. The deity of Christ is Jesus... Now, I'm going to word this question specifically. If you have a neighbor that's a Mormon, and you ask your Mormon neighbor... Do you believe that Jesus Christ is God? What answer will they give you? Yes. Do you have a Jehovah's Witness neighbor? And you ask them, is Jesus Christ God? They will say, yes. Now they're going to they're gonna want to slip, they're going to want to slip a little A in there. They're going to want to say, well, we, I believe he's a God. I absolutely believe he's a God. Because that's their distortion of the, the prologue to John's gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God, says their New World so-called translation, which is not. Does that mean that we agree with the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses on the deity of Christ? No. We do not. The question to ask your Mormon neighbor or your Jehovah's Witness neighbor is do you believe that Jesus Christ is God in exactly the same way and to exactly the same degree that God the Father is God? Do you believe that Jesus Christ is God in exactly the same way to exactly the same degree that God the Father is God? Now, if they're in those organizations and they know what those organizations believe, they're going to have to say, oh, well, if they need more than one word to answer that question, we disagree on a primary matter. Because there is, there, there are no, there are lots of primary theses, points of doctrine that define Christianity, but none is more central than that Jesus Christ is God in exactly the same way and to exactly the same degree that God the Father is God. Thus, the deity of Christ is a primary matter. And so, in Journey Together this winter, we look at the deity of Christ. I, um, again, you... Lots and lots of reference of late to the Baptist faith and message. This is what the Baptist faith and message, Article 2, which deals with God, Section B, which deals with God the Son. This is our confession of faith.
Christ is the eternal Son of God. In his incarnation as Jesus Christ, he was conceived of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Jesus perfectly revealed and did the will of God, taking upon himself human nature with its demands and necessities. That is, everything that necessarily makes a person human was true about Jesus. That's what that means. And identifying himself completely with mankind, yet without sin. Pause there for a second. That's, that's important because Adam and Eve were entirely human, but sinless before the fall. So you can't say that the sin nature is a part of what it is to be human. You're going to be human forever, even after glorification removes from you the last shred of a trace of your sin nature. You'll still be, you're going to be human forever. You're not going to have a sin nature forever. Uh, even the remnants and echoes of it. He honored the divine law by his personal obedience, and in his substitutionary death on the cross, he made provision for the redemption of men from sin. He was raised from the dead with a glorified body and appeared to his disciples as the person who was with them before his crucifixion. He ascended into heaven and is now exalted at the right hand of God, where he is the one mediator, fully God, fully man, in whose person is affected the reconciliation between God and man. He will return in power and glory to judge the world and to consummate his redemptive mission. He now dwells in all believers as the living and ever-present Lord. If you're considering, if you're not a member of McGregor and you're considering membership in McGregor, we will ask of you that you affirm our confession of faith, including that part of it. If you are a member of McGregor and anything that I just said causes you to go, uh-uh, we need to talk. I wouldn't advocate kicking you out, but I'd like to be a part of talking through the solidifying of your belief in the absolute deity of Christ. It is a bedrock of Christian faith. If you don't believe in the deity of Christ, whatever you believe is not Christianity just isn't. Well, that kind of matters. Well, tonight, I'm going to look at two different passages talking about two different things. First, I want to talk about the eternal glory of Christ from the aforementioned prologue to John's gospel. And then I want to talk a little bit about the relationship between Christ and his creation from a piece of Colossians 1 two strategic passages on the deity of Christ. John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. John 1, verses 1 through 5. Not 1 John, just John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. 
if Brickner had come to me a couple or three months back and said, we're going to do 11 weeks in the winter or 10 weeks or whatever, however long this semester of Journey Together is, if Brickner had come to me and said, we're going to do 10 weeks in the first five verses of the Gospel of John, I would have said, good, there's plenty there. I'm doing half of one evening, and it's already 647. So this is going to be flyover speed in one of the most profound paragraphs in the whole New Testament. There's a lot going on in these early verses of the Gospel of John. I want to center on five specific affirmations about Jesus that are in this set of verses. It's not accidental that John echoes Genesis, right? John didn't start in the beginning by accident. He, he knows that his readers, largely first century Jewish people, would have been real familiar with Genesis. So he grabs that same opening motif in the beginning. The first thing he affirms is the eternality of Jesus. The, the word logos, which stands behind the word, English word word here, was, was in Greek philosophical thought, secular Greek philosophy thought the logos was a name for that force which holds the universe together. Here John says, yeah, he has a name. So when he grabs the word logos out of Greek vocabulary, basically hijacking an idea out of Greek philosophy to say, yes, there is a unifying force that holds the world together, is Jesus. To the Jewish mind, the idea of the word of God was extraordinarily familiar. It was, it was a term they used for the, for the Old Testament. So he's, he's making a very complex and very profound not quite a pun, but a multi-layered reference when he identifies Jesus as the Word. But this first affirmation in the beginning was the Word. That, that verb, that verb of being was, is not structured as a verb, and the Greek verb tenses are marvelously nuanced. This, this cannot be said to mean in the beginning, there came to be the word. That's not what the verb tense implies. It is not a, a point of coming to be. That's not, the, that's not the idea. The idea is linear action in past time. If you wanted to blow the verb out with a little bit more English language complexity, you could say, in the beginning was existing the word. Not in the beginning came to be the word. That difference matters. Why do we not, why would we not say in the beginning there came into existence the word? Why would we not say that? There is, there is no coming into existence for him, right? He, when, when whatever the beginning is, and the simple way to understand the in the beginning, before creation, and I've got Genesis on my mind these days, unsurprisingly, before create, time is a created thing. That's why God is so, um, God is omnitemporal and unbounded by time because he does not exist within and under time. 
Time was his idea. Time is itself a created construct subject to his omniscience, omnipotence, omnipresence, and omnitemporality. He doesn't bend to time. Time bends to him. So before creation, before the beginning, is before time started happening. And if you have a clear and easy grasp of eternality, your brain works better than mine. I can affirm it, but it, but it makes my head explode to try to figure it out. There's a lot to think about there. Before anything was, he had already been being forever. His eternality. Now, you and I are going to live forever. You'll hear me say this coming Sunday that part of the image of God, when we get to the end of Genesis chapter 1 and we're talking about the creation of humankind, and we're made in the image of God, one of the characteristics of that image of God in us is eternality. From the time we come into existence, from that time on, we will, we will exist forever. You're going to be you forever. You're going to be you forever in heaven or you're going to be you forever in hell, but every human being is going to be himself or herself forever. So you are, you are eternal in one direction. He has been eternal eternally in both directions. The only human being about whom that is true and it is a characteristic of deity. His eternality proves that he is God. Second, his expressed deity. And the word was with God and the word was God. He was in, he was being in the beginning with God. The word was God. That's where um, the Jehovah's Witnesses insert an A there. Uh, the New World Translation, which is not a translation, um, the Jehovah's Witness Bible says, and the word was a God. When I have an encounter with a Jehovah, they've stopped coming to my house. Somewhere, somewhere, somewhere I'm marked on a map, and I didn't mean for that to happen because I'm always very polite. I always let them put the conversational ball in play, and I smile and ask for equal time when they're done. And then I pick on the younger one. He wants you to believe that, but, but you're not going to believe that, are you? That kind of thing. Makes them nuts. <laughs> well, he was a God. I always just smile and say, how many are there? I wasn't aware that the Watchtower Society taught polytheism. Well, we don't, we don't. Well, yeah, you do. If he was a God, but not God, then you, you must be polytheistic. They don't like that. But they painted themselves into an oddball little corner by adding things that aren't there to the text. Jesus is not a God. He is God. His eternality, his explicit deity. Number three, his creativity. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. Um, sidebar concept. Important one. We, we use the term progressive revelation. 
Now, I know the word progressive, for some of you who are real, real political, progressive may not be your favorite word, but bear with me for a minute. <clears throat> progressive revelation is simply the understanding that as, as the living God was unfolding his word for his people over the course of the centuries, from, from Moses writing the Pentateuch through John putting his pen down when the book of Revelation was completed, Progressive revelation kind of works like um, my, my mom and dad in the, in the house, the, the old family house that they sold up in northeast Florida before they moved in, down to Tampa in 2017. Mom and dad had a formal dining room, you know, <clears throat> wallpaper, big table could seat 12 if you put all the leaves in it, you know, and all the all the uh, china and all that sort of stuff, which by now, if you've not discovered your grandchildren are not interested in it though it was important to you back in the day, right? That's interesting, the inter intergenerational movement of the Linux wedding dishes from your generation down to the generation of our kids and grandkids, they don't know, mom, dad, what would I do with that and where am I supposed to store it? But anyway, mom and dad belong to the dining room era and the dining room was an interior room in their house. It had a couple of windows, but there were heavy drapes because you had to be able to dim the lights in the dining room. The dining room had a dimmer switch. Progressive revolution, revelation is like a dimmer switch, if you just want a word picture. When you walk in the dining room and the lights are off, you, you, you go in real carefully because you don't know where the furniture is. But if you stand just inside the door and somebody starts just a little bit, you begin to see their shapes. There's something big here. There's a great big mass in the middle of the room. And there might even be some stuff sitting there. Can't tell much. Turn it up a little bit. Oh, that's a table. It's not a bed. It's not a box. And as you continue to turn the lights on and on and on, you get more detail. At some point, the, the, the cells in your eye that recognize color have enough to work with and you begin to see the colors and the details. You know, there's a reason that, and I'm 61 and I do it all the time, I take out my phone and use my flashlight on menus. Anybody else ever do that? Because the atmosphere of people running the restaurant don't want me to be able to read the print on the menu. So I just add my own light to it. And if you're so young, much younger than me, you don't know what I'm talking about. You, you, you wait. Your day, your day for the flashlight in the restaurant is coming because you need more light to see more detail. Progressive revelation is as, as God was unveiling his word, he gave more and more light. Jesus Christ, as the active agent of the Trinity in creation, is not explicitly God the Son is not explicitly fingered in Genesis chapter 1. Now God does an interesting thing in Genesis chapter 1, and he starts using plural references for himself. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That word is singular. Let us make man in our image. So the singular God refers to himself in the plural. He's starting to unfold the doctrine of the Trinity as early as Genesis 1. By the time we get to John 1, we know that God the Son is very active 
at the point of creation. That's a progressive revelation example. We know things about Jesus later in the Bible that we, we spot him early on once we're taught by the Spirit what to look for. <laughs> but we have it spelled out for us later. His creativity. Fourth, his necessity. Verse 4, in him was life. You don't know God if you don't know Jesus. You don't have eternal life. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Your response to Jesus, if, if you would live forever in right relationship with God, if you would know the forgiveness of sin, if you would be a, a truly adopted child of God, in him is life. And life, and that life was the light of men. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You can't be ambivalent about Jesus. His eternality, his deity, his creativity, his necessity, and finally, um, the, the, the Latin root vic or vinc, V-I-N-C or V-I-C, means to conquer. It comes down to English in the word victory. <coughs> the historical Howards. Can't help but be who I am. I'm a Howard. Daddy was a Howard. His daddy was a Howard. We're Howard. There's even a castle in Yorkshire, England. I've never been there yet. It's on my bucket list. We have, we have a castle. Castle Howard. I say we in the broadest possible sense. <laughs> they are the Earls of Carlisle. The present Earl is the sixth Earl of Carlisle. And he and his wonderful family, who are Howards, live in Castle Howard. It's been in a couple of miniseries. It's not as famous as Highclere. Y'all know what Highclere Castle is a, is a television and movie star. Y'all know, know Highclere Castle, right? Some of you do, at least. Yeah, Highclere Castle gets to play the part of Downton Abbey. <clears throat> yeah, it's a real castle with a real Earl and his wife living in it. They're not the, uh, the Earl of Grantham at Highclere. They are the Earl of... Oh, Carnivarn, uh, or Carnivarn are the, uh, the folks that live in um, Highclere. But the Howards are the Earls Carlisle, and they've got a castle. The Latin motto on the Howard family crest, and how much of a nerd am I that I know this, is sola uh, virtus invicta which in Latin means only courage is unconquerable. Sola virtus invicta. I own a couple of invicta watches. They're big, ugly watches. I'm not super fond of them, but uh, I, like, I like having the invicta logo. Makes me, you know, you're gonna buy watches from somebody and Timex never did anything for me. <laughs> um, so, invicta. Another word that comes down to English from that root is invincible. 
invincible. That which does not know defeat. Verse 5, the fifth characteristic of deity we see in this set of verses is his invincibility. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Darkness never can. Darkness never can. Have any nightlights in your house? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I bet, unless you just like to leave lamps on, and some people do, if you have lights that are designed to be nightlights in your house, I bet it's tiny little LEDs. Tiny, tiny, tiny little LEDs. And yet when it's two in the morning and you need to go through a part of your house where the big lights aren't on, and all that is on in that hallway or that bathroom or that otherwise kind of great big room, all that's on is a tiny, tiny, tiny little LED. That LED gains victory over the darkness. How much dark would you have to pour on top of that LED to, to, to knock it out? There's no such thing. Light always wins. You can dispel darkness with light, but you cannot dispel light with darkness. Light and darkness in the same place, light wins, period. Right? Well, that's an illustration for the character of Christ. His light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has no chance, no chance against it. Uh, when I was on staff at First Baptist Ocala, like our McGregor Auditorium, the First Baptist Church of Ocala Auditorium doesn't have any outside windows. We, can make, we could make that auditorium actually darker than we can make the McGregor Auditorium because the McGregor Auditorium has windows with uh, glass in them that see daylight. So even when we turn off all the lights over in our worship center, if you sit there for a second, you'll realize it's not terribly dark in there because daylight can make it through most of those windows in the doors. First Baptist Ocala, we could make the room pitch dark, like not quite developed photographs dark, but dark, no daylight dark. <coughs> I was preaching on this passage once at First Baptist Ocala, and I said, let me show you what this means, that just light against darkness. <coughs> so I had the guys up in the booth shut off all the lights in the room, and I mean all the lights in the room. And I took a little LED pin light out of my pocket. And I said, y'all will be patient with me. Give me a minute. Let's sit in the dark for a minute. Everybody's all right. I turned that LED pin light on. And I said, in about three or four minutes, unless your eyes are not young anymore, most of you, if you pick your Bible up and turn your Bible so the page is facing this pin light that I'm holding in a room 25 pews deep, you will have enough light to read by with this one tiny little light in this very dark room. Jesus is the light, and there's no dark in the universe that will extinguish him ever, ever, ever. He is undefeatable. He's never known defeat. He's never known defeat. He will never know defeat. Um, chasing a rabbit for a minute. People like to make a big deal. In, in times, 
students like to make a big deal out of the Battle of Armageddon, the Battle of Armageddon, that big end times battle. And it, it's gonna, it has a lot of setup. There's a lot of setup, but honestly, if you read about it, it ain't much of a fight. You know what happens at the Battle of Armageddon? Jesus shows up, speaks, and it's over. That's the Battle of Armageddon. Because that's all he has to do. Because he's God. And omnipotence doesn't play. Doesn't have to. The eternal glory of Christ. Now take your Bible and turn to Colossians 1, verses 15 through 19. Christ and his place in creation. Paul, writing to the church at Colossae, beginning in verse 15, says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. It's probably the pinnacle of progressive revelation on the nature of the person of Christ. This is, this is a big deal. Um, the word image in verse 15. I'll, I'll, I'll four, four, four uh, specific points with some subpoints for this. First, his representation to the created universe. He is the, the image of the invisible God. What do you call, suppose when you get home this evening, you have some work to do, those of you who have computers, and suppose you want to crank up Microsoft Word on your computer at home, um, Microsoft Word is, is millions and millions of lines of code. It's a, it's, a great big, it's a great big computer program that has to do a whole lot of stuff. But when you sit down at your computer at home and you want to run Windows, you don't concern or run Mac or Windows and you want to run Word, you don't concern yourself with the millions and millions and millions of lines of code. You click on something to launch Word. What is that something called on your screen? What is it? What is the thing you click on? An icon. You know the Greek word image here in Colossians 1.15 is the Greek word icon? That got a whole lot easier to explain as computers and graphical user interfaces. I, you used to try to explain it, but you'd sound like a Greek Orthodox priest. Because in, in Eastern Orthodoxy, they have icons, which are these flat. Uh, Roman Catholic churches will have 3D statues. Eastern Orthodox churches will have two-dimensional icons. They are pictures of, of the saints. Whereas our Catholic friends would have statues. Our Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox friends have what, what they, the, the word is icon. It's exactly what your little blue Microsoft Word symbol is to them. It is an invocation and evocation of the identity of the saint. Your double click on the little blue thing, whoop, and word starts. Because you clicked on its icon. It's how 
that millions and millions of lines of code presents itself to you as a little thing you can get a handle on. Jesus is the icon of the immeasurable I am to his creation. He is the representation of God. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. It's a big statement. You make a statement like that, it better be true, or you are just as blasphemous as all get out. He is the representation of the invisible God. Roman numeral two, his relationship above the created universe. This phrase, firstborn of all creation, at the back of verse 15, gets seized upon by the cults. Aha! Jesus is a part of creation. He's the firstborn of creation. Well, that's not what is meant here. Firstborn is not meant in a chronological sense. It's not even meant in a created sense. The first century reader would have understood firstborn to be his first place in privilege. And his first place in priority. And his first place in prominence. Jesus is not created. But when all creation looks, he is the most important thing that's ever been a part of the created order into which he stepped at his incarnation. His relationship is high honor and supremacy. And then his role. His role. Verses 16 and, and 17. For by him all things were created. By the way, he can't be created if he was the creator of all things. You don't have to read further than the very next words to know that the statement firstborn among creation cannot mean, firstborn of all creation cannot mean that he is created because for by him all things were created. He's uncreated. In heaven and earth, he is the creator of all realms. We'll talk Sunday, and again, this is, I got Genesis on the brain right now because we've got 11 chapters of Genesis we're going to be making our way through on Sunday morning. Shame on me if I don't have Genesis on the brain. We're going to be talking about the heavens because in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. We'll say more about that Sunday. But he's the creator of all of it. He's the creator. That, that dusty, nomadic, Jewish carpenter's son and his raggedy little band of Galilean fishermen and a few others walking around talking about eternal life. Healing the sick, raising the dead, calming the storm is the author of creation. It matters that Jesus Christ is human. He's not an aloof savior. He's not disconnected from the human experience. He's had the human experience. 
he is simultaneously fully God to the same degree that God the Father is God. He's the author of the realms. He is the author of the realities. All things were created through him and for him. Pardon me. All, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Spirit world is a world of created beings. One of the errors that you, that you will avoid with a biblical understanding of the nature of God is the philosophical, the error, the error of philosophical dualism. Dualism, which is a common underlying thought frame in most of the world's religions, dualism is the view that there's some great big cosmic good guy and some great big cosmic bad guy, and they're essentially evenly matched. And you, by your actions, determine outcomes in this tug of war between a basically evenly matched cosmic level good guy and a basically evenly matched cosmic level bad guy. That is so wrong. That is so unbiblical. You are underestimating the character of the living God and overestimating the character of our enemy who, while way bigger than you are, way stronger than you are, way smarter than you are, way older than you are, is himself a created being. And a created being cannot be even roughly evenly matched for the creator of all things. The living God created all angelic beings, including the ones that rebelled. As with all things, their existence serves his ultimate purposes, his own glory, and the good of those who love him. Must frustrate the dickens out of Satan when he thinks he can have a rebellion. And he finds himself time and again. Anywhere he gets, God is already there. Anything he thinks, God already knows he was going to think it. Anything he does, the Lord of heaven and earth has already outmaneuvered him. Oh, he's nasty. And he's spiteful. And he can do some damage but he's also boxed in at every turn by the living God and suffers himself the limitations of a created being. I say suffers, for him it's suffering. He created all realms, he created all realities, he created all ranks, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him. That means he's the power. For him. That means he's the purpose. He is before all things. That preposition before functions in the original very like it does in the English. It can mean two different things. It could be speaking of his pre-existence. 
that before anything that you and I would call all things exists, it's a reiteration of the idea that in the beginning he's already there. It also means priority. I, I would put you before you um, in terms of priority. He is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. Now, I am not a physicist. I wouldn't even say that I could hold my own with a very good high school student in physics. But I, when I was a little kid, I played with magnets. Everybody, you know. And I, I remember that when you, put, when you put the plus end of a magnet and the minus end of a magnet together, they want to go zoop. And when you put two pluses end to end, they don't want to hang out at all. Those positively charged ends of those magnets push each other away. You say, well, that's not terribly sophisticated. I, I started by saying I'm not terribly sophisticated. And I'm certain that the secular physicists have all kinds of reasons they say this is possible, and that's okay too. The hydrogen atom has one positively charged proton as its nucleus. A negatively charged electron zips in circles around it. And if you're a physicist in the room, I'm gonna end up owing you an apology, bear with me. You get to helium. And something bizarre kinda of happens. The nucleus of the helium atom is two positively charged protons and they're not repelling each other. They're all hugged up. And I know from being a third grader playing with magnets, they shouldn't be all that happy to be that close. <laughs> and the further you go down the periodic table, the problem just gets worse. All these nuclei of all these atoms have all these positive particles that aren't repelling each other. They're being held together. Not enough mass there to attribute it to gravity. It's certainly not magnetism. The physicists have mathematical formulas two pages long to explain how, no, they can't explain how, they, to explain what is going on mathematically. And they have long jargon-filled explanations that come down to something's holding all that together and we ain't got any idea what. Colossians 1 would tell them. The reason the positively charged atom, uh, protons in the atoms hold together at the nucleus is one atom at a time. God the Son is holding them together. You say, he must be terribly busy. He is. But one of the characteristics of omniscience is he can catalog the atoms in the universe more easily than you can catalog the silverware in your house. You'd have to slow down and count to know how many forks there are in your kitchen. He does not have to slow down and count to know how many atoms exist in his universe. He just knows. 
And one of the characteristics of his omnipotence is he can hold all that stuff together as much as he can move the hearts of your children toward a possible reconciliation or influence and determine who ends up managing a dominoes where one of his children goes to work. One of my favorite cosmological questions, if you've, if you've heard my story, you know uh, that I, I once served for, I served for five and a half years on the staff of a church that was led by, uh, by the pastor whom I believe to be perhaps the greatest Bible teacher of the 20th century. You can debate that with me if you want to, and it's a subjective call. It's not like there's an objective panel of judges who decides such things, but I believe that when history is written, if the Lord tarries, that they will speak of Adrian Rogers in the 20th century like they speak of Charles Spurgeon in the 19th. I believe that, that, that the, the, the comparison is a fair one. If you don't believe that, that's okay. I wouldn't argue it with you. Dr. Rogers was once asked, he had been preaching on creation. And the, the Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God, the sky shows his handiwork. Someone asked Dr. Rogers, you know, might have been about the time the Hubble went up or something, and we were finding out that, you know, we, we can peer into a patch of space that looks to your eye like the size of a penny. And when we peer into it, and the Webb telescope is doing it again, right? We look into these tiny, tiny little pinpricks that are, that are one, one hundredth of one percent of the visible sky to your eye. Some tiny little piece of the sky. And when we zoom on it hard with these super telescopes, we find out that in that tiny little piece, there is immeasurable detail. There is more density of stuff out there than we've ever imagined. There are galaxies beyond galaxies, nebula beyond nebula, stars beyond stars, and all kinds of other things. And someone asked Dr. Rogers if Earth is the story. Earth is where God the Son stepped into creation. So Earth is the story. Then why would the living God go to all the trouble to create all this infinite cosmos of spectacular detail in every direction. Dr. Rogers' response was, what trouble? I love that answer. What, you're assuming he exerted himself? He spoke and it happened. That's all the trouble it was. And if, and if you don't view God in terms of that scale. You're not seeing him biblically. And specifically from Colossians 1, it is God the Son that's holding all that together. The same one who died on a cross for the sins of his people. And in him all things hold together. <laughs> I love it. And again, I'm not sophisticated in my understanding of the natural sciences. I'm an avid reader. Um, but I'm not sophisticated. But I've seen it time and time again, just in my pitiful little short lifespan, that the scientists climb the mountain. And they, and they sweat and they toil and they sweat and they toil to understand things and they get to the top of the mountain, 
and the theologian is sitting at the top of the mountain going, I wondered when you'd get here. <laughs> in him, all things hold together. Finally, point four, his representatives, not his representation, that he's the icon of the invisible God, but here, his representatives in the created world, the church. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Firstborn from the dead, by the way, means he's the first person to actually be resurrected to never die again. Right? Other people, a small handful, have died and lived again. Lazarus would probably be the most famous example. There are a handful of others during the ministry of Jesus, and a small number of them in the Old Testament. A few around the time of the resurrection. Matthew talks about the graves being opened. Everyone except Jesus, whoever died and lived again, died again. Jesus has resurrection body, serial number 1.0. He's the firstborn among truly resurrected to never die again, glorified, resurrected human bodies. He's got the only one that's been issued so far. That in everything, he might be preeminent. If I were doing devotional application tonight, I would ask you what areas of your life where he is not, what are the areas in your life where he is not preeminent? And how satisfied are you to have compartments or pieces of your life where Jesus is not preeminent? For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. I want to come back to this thing of head of the body, the church. We're passionate at McGregor and for those of you who have long history here, well, you know that plural elder leadership was not always our model. Funny thing about, about truth, once you see it, it's hard to unsee it. And if you go looking in the New Testament for how was the, 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 hum, the mere human shepherding of the church organized in the New Testament, you can't find anything but plural elders. Every single time the word elder, pastor is used in, an, in, a, in a sense narrative describing what's going on, it's always plural. It's always a group of biblically qualified men. In the course of our introducing the practice of elder leadership to McGregor, some now approaching eight years ago. Yeah, when we first began to talk about it. Goodness, how the years go by. And if you're newer than eight years to McGregor, you would perhaps never have known this church to be anything but an elder-led congregationalist church. When we were first introducing the concept of brother who is no longer here, I, I count the man a brother. In fact, he and I still email from time to time. I'd say we're friends. But he said, yeah, the problem with that is the church has to have a head. Somebody's got to be in charge. He didn't like the idea of plurality. 